My name is David Orban, and I'm very glad to have all of you following the show. Uh, welcome to Searching for the Question Live. Uh, before we start, I want to remind you that uh, even if we are live, uh, you can always watch past episodes on both Facebook and on YouTube. And on YouTube, you can also subscribe to the channel. We also have a Discord community, and I invite you to uh, join on uh, davidorban.com slash Discord. And finally, if you find a show valuable, as well as the other content that I create together with my team, uh, you are welcome to become a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash davidorban. Uh, today's uh, theme is uh, Bitcoin and open blockchains. Uh, Ten years ago, the mathematical revolution uh, the invention of Bitcoin uh, started, and uh, its consequences are still uh, unfolding. It added a fundamental new component that was missing from our digital world, a modern tool for economic transactions. But Bitcoin also inspired many to aim for more and catalyze the creative engines of thousands of people all over the world. And the disruption that the new ideas bring, as implemented in all of these projects, can be actually measured by the panicky reactions of regulators who want to make everything possible to defend the status quo. So what is the promise of Bitcoin? We talk about this with Andreas Antonopoulos, uh, who is a best-selling author, speaker, educator, and a highly sought-after expert in Bitcoin and open blockchain technologies. He's known for making complex subjects easy to understand and for highlighting both the positive and negative impacts of these technologies uh, and the impacts that they can have uh, in uh, our society. His mission is to educate as many people as possible in as many places as possible and in as many languages as possible about Bitcoin and open blockchains. Welcome, Andreas, to Searching for the Question Live. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show, David. So uh, today we are not going to talk about uh, uh, very deep technical issues. You have uh, uh, hundreds of uh, videos on your YouTube channel. And uh, of course, uh, people who are following you know that uh, your production is, is quite uh, uh, broad and deep and, and increasing. I am... Uh, a, a supporter of yours together with hundreds of other people, almost a thousand now on Patreon. And it was funny, a few uh, weeks ago, you asked, am I flooding you with too much content? It was an interesting uh, tidbit of uh, self-awareness because all of us uh, are eager to talk about as many things as possible, but we are also aware of how difficult it is to absorb it on the, on the other side. Uh, but but we are going to talk about the implications of of Bitcoin and and, and open blockchains and whether uh, you I I know I am impatient but whether we are too impatient in expecting that uh, uh, what we perceive as what can happen should already be here and that we are maybe failing uh, the full potential or the promise of, of uh, the revolution that we want to see unfolding. So let's start with that. Are we too impatient? Is Bitcoin garnering followers, adopters at a slower speed than it would be reasonable to expect? 
are we failing in something that uh, either explaining it or implementing it in easy to use wallets and software platforms or everything is going according to some plan well uh, one of the interesting things about bitcoin is there is no plan um and part of the reason there is no plan is because there's no planner um, bitcoin is a leaderless system in the very essence of the word leaderless it's a leaderless movement because um, no one controls the underlying system and its properties emerge from the collaboration of everyone involved and the same applies to all of the open blockchains um, out there to a lesser or greater extent across different dimensions. So when there is no plan, you've got to see it in the broader context of what's happening in the world. Um, I think it, we are impatient because um, we can clearly see that this, um, this vision has merit, there's need for it, and the current systems we have are failing to scale. Uh, but at the same time, what we're attempting to do here is re-engineer uh, the institution of trust and de-institutionalize it, turn trust into a system that is offered by a network protocol that is neutral and open to everyone, uh, rather than institutions that are hierarchically managed and within a specific country or jurisdiction. And th that's a very big effort. Uh, even the, the smaller effort, which is re-engineering money, we're playing with a technology that is 15,000 years or longer and um, so embedded into society that most people don't even consider money a technology. It's an invisible magic uh, to them. So both of those tasks are Herculean. Um, you know, let's fix trust. And while we're at it, let's fix money. Um, <laughs> that's a big one. So um, it's not surprising. This is going to take decades. And finally... Um, unlike other technologies where uh, there really isn't any direct uh, opposition to, like, you know, when when the automobile was introduced, sure, it, it offended um, horse breeders and horse buggy manufacturers, but they weren't a powerful lobby or anything like that. They couldn't stand in its way. And when electricity was introduced, yes, whale oil... Um, production precipitated uh, very uh, sorry declined precipitously, and and but the whale oil lobby wasn't very powerful. We're talking about taking on a hundred fifteen trillion dollar industry, uh, the largest cartel in the world, the money industry, uh, and so unlike other technologies, our lack of patience is also uh, countered by a very very significant effort to prevent the disruption of the status quo and to preserve power. Um, the first example uh, that I remember uh, when um, powerful uh, incumbents were able to persuade uh, courts uh, that a given technology was not neutral after a series of uh, defeats, and, and you mentioned a few because all of those uh, changes were opposed and 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 not only you know um automobiles or electricity but also uh radio and and um uh, free to air uh, uh sorry cable television opposed by mm -hmm. free to air television and uh, uh the uh, the vcr very very famously 
but then peer-to-peer -peer, uh, uh, file distribution arrived, and uh, the the courts, including the Supreme Court of the United States, rather than uh, saying, "Hey, um, you know what? It is up to uh, you uh, to work out new business models that can thrive uh, in the framework of this new technology," they said that uh, the uh, uh, the technology was uh, dangerous enough to uh, make it illegal uh, and and for me it was uh, at the time and and since then as if uh, uh, the universe bifurcated and and we are sitting on the wrong branch where mm -hmm. we are still um happy when apple or google announce uh, billions of dollars being spent on centralized data servers, data centers, uh, that actually represent a very convenient choke point and control mechanism for our thoughts. And, and uh, now, of course, as money is becoming more and more elect electronic, another choke point is already there uh, where uh, we cannot freely transact with the current versions of money. Uh, between between humans, so um, the the th that is why in my preamble I wrote the one measure of success is the level of panic that regulators uh, and incumbents are exhibiting uh, mm -hmm. with with regards of what uh, the, the the people who support Bitcoin and blockchain are uh, trying to to support. What is your perception of, of the level of uh, panic? Uh, is it increasing, decreasing? Um, is is uh, an effect like sometimes happens of, of competition by Bitcoin and blockchain forcing reforms that are by themselves healthy and go in the direction we want? Um, well... Uh, let's start with the last one. Uh, no, it's not forcing reforms that are going in the direction we want. Quite, quite the opposite. It's entrenching um, business as usual even more strongly, uh, as happened in the music industry. So it, it's interesting um, to look at this and, and realize that uh, when, when people look at Bitcoin for the first time, they perceive it as something that is attempting to substitute old analog money with new digital money. Um, so they see the battle primarily in old mo money versus new money. Um, but that's not actually the battle. Uh, old money, peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, untraceable, bare instruments printed on linen uh, and with green ink dollars uh, or other paper currencies um, are already obsolete and on the way out. And they're going out very, very quickly. And what they're being replaced with uh, isn't Bitcoin, um, but it's uh, digital monies that are centrally managed and centrally controlled uh, in the form of the bank accounts, the credit card systems, the mobile payment systems, and increasingly now what are called central bank digital currencies, which are imminent, uh, which, which represent the wholesale replacement of analog money with digital money. So the battle we're fighting here is not between analog and digital money. It's between digital money that is central, controlled, and surveilled, and digital money that is open, decentralized, and free. And, and that's the primary battle of our era.
uh, we're going into the future, there will not be cash. Uh, and then the question is, what kind of money do we have? Money in which um, if you attend the wrong demonstration or speak uh, or participate in the wrong political activity, the government can, without due process, terminate your access to all financial activity, uh, effectively stopping you from being able to even buy food um, and uh, turning you into a non-financial entity, uh, disembanking you. Um, and, and, and that's a pretty scary future because even the alternative where you are banked in that system means that you are constantly under surveillance, uh, very intrusive surveillance because your spending patterns reveal uh, a lot more about you than even your movement or, or other activities you take, take part in. So um, let's talk about the level of panic. Uh, I, I've described this in the past in uh, some of my talks as the incumbents, the existing financial system, going through the five stages of grief. Um, for the first several years of Bitcoin, the predominant uh, reaction was denial. Um, this won't work. This can't work. This isn't real. It's just fake. It's not real money. Nobody uses it. That didn't last very long um, because clearly it was here to stay. And actually real and people started really using it. Um, so then the next reaction uh, was mostly anger and it was a, a, a whole propaganda effort to paint Bitcoin as something that was evil, only used by criminals, drug dealers, uh, pornographers, etc. Uh, then of course, you know, you spend enough time in the Bitcoin space, you meet enough hairdressers and dentists uh, and farmers using Bitcoin, and that doesn't fit the narrative. So then you start questioning it. The third stage is bargaining. And, and bargaining is a really interesting one because what, what happened with bargaining is we saw this attempt to say, um, yes, blockchain is interesting, but not the criminal currency Bitcoin. Blockchain, but without the, um, the openness, the neutrality, the borderless operation, the lack of control, the lack of a central party, the lack of vetting. Instead, a, a safe blockchain, uh, where safe means controlled by others uh, and surveilled and with vetting and authorization and deauthorization if needed, uh, censorship, controls within borders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Essentially stripping this innovation of everything that makes it disruptive so that it can be comfortably absorbed um, by the existing financial system. Bargaining. Uh, we've got two more stages to go. Those are depression, which we're rapidly heading into an era of global depression, uh, followed by acceptance. Um, of course, uh, as with the actual five stages of grief, um, organizations cycle through them quite rapidly and go from one end back to the beginning and through all of those stages again. Uh, the uh, opportunity uh, to learn uh, about this is uh, what excited you at the beginning when 10 years ago or or little less uh, you entered uh, the 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 world of uh, bitcoin and and uh, never never uh, reemerged you were lost mm -hmm. to to any other interest or or almost um, yes. i uh, i have uh, friends uh, active in in artificial intelligence and it was it was fascinating to see how talent uh, would be attracted to one and the other of these two exciting fields, 
which require uh, a quite uh, important intellectual investment uh, if you want to um, be uh, deeply immersed in it uh, to then be able to act uh, and and create as well and 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 the talent would swoosh like a, a liquid uh, resource from one uh, to the other and back and forth or actually in projects that tried to um, merge uh, AI aspects with with blockchain as well so over the course of these years um, has your uh, ha has the way that you explain uh, Bitcoin as it exists, as well as its potential and blockchain uh, evolved? Do you feel that now you are more effective in, in uh, talking about it uh, to people? For me, it has been quite uh, frustrating. I, I do remember people coming back to me a year later, having heard me keynote a conference and telling me, oh, David, uh, if I only listen to you, uh, now Bitcoin is worth $100, it's too late. Uh, or or a few years later, they would say, oh, now Bitcoin is worth $1,000, it's too late. And leaving aside whether it is useful or useless to look at Bitcoin as an investment um, mechanism itself and what are the risks uh, associated, for me, all of those confirmed that I was unable to make people take the first simple step of opening a, a, a Bitcoin wallet and spending $10 to have the experience of getting their hands dirty. Yeah. Do you feel the similar kind of frustration or, or you, you feel that, that people listen to you more than they listen to me? Well, uh, for, for one thing, um, I, I think my my skill in explaining this has, has evolved and um, I've continuously refined it and distilled it down to uh, kind of shorter and punchier um, ideas and metaphors in order to explain it. I've tried to um, figure out what things about this technology confuse people the most. And, uh, but I've also accepted that because what we are explaining um, is the essence of money and people don't really understand how money works in the first place. A lot of the time in order to explain Bitcoin, I have to explain money. Uh, and that requires taking a step back and, uh, and going over what exactly money is and how it works. Um, because people have all kinds of ideas about that. In fact, I was quite surprised to notice that the dominant ideas about what money is and how it works are mostly mythology. Uh, so people have these um, uh, myths that they believe about what money is and how it works. And because those myths are simple and easy to understand, relatively easy to understand, and um, comforting, comforting truths, um, they stick to those beliefs. So if you ask people, you know, what is money and how does it work? They'll say, oh, money is something that is created by governments and is backed by gold that is in a place called Fort Knox. And um, the government issues money vis-a-vis uh, -vis the reserves they have in gold. Like, um, that's not at all how it works. Uh, that's actually entirely incorrect. Um, and I, I've even had debates with people who firmly believe that. So if you don't really understand how money works, it's very difficult to understand how a technology that is attempting to change how money works could possibly work, um, because you have to question all of the initial assumptions. Now, the good news is we're getting a lot of help. Um, 
And the help we're getting is that um, monetary economics is a, is a field uh, fraught with debate. And we are currently in completely uncharted territory. We are now um, touching various experiments in monetary policy that have never happened before. I remember when I studied macroeconomics um, in college, and our professor was adamant about the fact that interest rates could go to zero but never below, and that they couldn't even approach zero because that would lead to being trapped in the zero bound. Um, and yet, here we are. So. Um, a lot of the theories of monetary policy are now being tested with extreme examples, uh, and we don't know what the outcomes will be. So this is going to force people to reckon with the mythology of money. Um, the broader issue, however, is that I never regret somebody not following my advice and not getting involved in Bitcoin because I recognize that as a system, it is still very difficult to use, very difficult to learn. Um, it has a lot of confusing technical terminology. The user interfaces are very difficult to use, very much like early email and the TCP IP internet and the early web were. Very, very difficult to use. It, it took um, almost two decades from the moment I first um, sent an email to the moment, let's say, my mom first sent an email. And it took a lot of technology and infrastructure to breach um, to, to bridge that gap and to to make it possible. So here's another way to think about it. Um, the reason Bitcoin was a hundred dollars when it was too difficult for your friends to use is because it was too difficult for your friends to use. Meaning that those who um, put in the enormous amount of effort and risk uh, required to get acquainted with the technology and even use it as an investment, um, basically earned a premium. And that premium was the ease of use premium. And as that ease of use premium, um, as the ease of use increases, that premium disappears. Uh, so you get um, less and less of a discount on your um, early investment and early adoption. Um, because as it gets easier, more people can get on board. So as th that's basically been the reason why those who got involved earlier um, got a bit of a premium. But I think it's also wrong to look at it as an investment. Uh, that's missing the point. Um, it's a bit like looking at the early web as a replacement for telephones. Uh, it encompasses only a very narrow aspect of what is a vast and impactful technology. Uh, I was uh, trying to text uh, my son to ask the dog to please come in because uh, she's barking like crazy. <laughs> but you well, the microphone isn't speaking. picking it up. So <laughs> oh, okay, wonderful. It's Thank okay. You. <laughs> I'm paranoid about it a little bit, uh, but she will be happy because I'm uh, streaming so much these days that she's always inside an leash, and so that's good. But being live and interactive also means to have uh, stuff uh, coming in from uh, from our viewers. Uh, Emiliano from Twitter uh, is uh, uh, laughing about uh, the fact that people uh, still believe gold uh, is what uh, gives money uh, meaning. Uh, and uh, Mark, uh, after complaining that he wanted to take a nap, but we started streaming, so now he can't, uh, it, uh, asks you 
what you think about uh, uh, modern monetary uh, theory and and also adds another adds another question uh, whether uh, the quantitative easing today uh, is different uh, from what it was in 2008 uh, as it relates to uh, its potential effect on on bitcoin so um, mon modern monetary theory um which can, I, I guess, I'm, first of all, I'm not an economist. I'm a computer scientist. So my primary focus is not even on the monetary aspects of Bitcoin. Um, I have a layperson's opinion on that. I've had some basic education in, in economics. Um, and, and I study it because I find it interesting. But uh, take that as an opinion only. Um, I, I would summarize modern monetary theory as uh, basically deficits don't matter. Uh, debt doesn't matter. Um, and we can print uh, money in order to produce uh, public goods, uh, whether those are infrastructure goods, universal basic income, or things like that. I, I think it's ironic because um, we've already had modern, mo modern monetary theory um, since at least the 1970s, but even before. The only difference is that was a monetary theory directed at um, providing stimulus, and support, subsidy, uh, and cheap capital to the rich and to multinational corporations. The only real twist, modern monetary theory as opposed to its older version, is the idea that instead we give it to the poor um, through universal basic income. And so suddenly, that is a radical and controversial idea. Giving cheap money to the rich as subsidy and um, quantitative easing and stimulus, totally fine. Best thing ever happened to capitalism. Monetary, ma monetary theory, giving it to the poor, um, is uh, radical Marxism and should be stomped out uh, immediately. So uh, I think it, 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 what modern monetary theory does is it holds up a mirror to the hypocrisy of um, uh, a political class that, um, that does not like it when the various uh, empowering, um, the various empowering inventions and models of the 20th century are democratized. It's the same thing with um, uh, Bitcoin's ability to give everyone the financial capabilities of a multinational company. And one of the first questions I get in almost all of my seminars is, but who's going to pay taxes? And it's like, oh, so when multinationals and those who could afford to travel to tax havens and pay uh, armies of lawyers and accountants weren't paying taxes, I guess it was fine. But if the middle class democratizes that capability, uh, now it's a problem. Um, and, and this is a classic um, clash of disruptive technology when it democratizes the means um, to access some capability. It gives superpowers to uh, normal people that previously were reserved um, to a very small number of people. Uh, it's just like the idea of democratizing uh, media with first blogs, uh, citizen journalism, and then uh, webcasts, podcasts, and things like that. Now suddenly we're worried about um, censorship and whether we should control truth and things like that. Never worried about that when it was only 
um, multi-billionaire Australian magnets uh, twisting our brains into um, crazy conspiracy theories. We didn't worry about it then, but uh, <laughs> now we're worried. So I, I think a lot of these things are about taking a capability that was very narrow, democratizing it and giving it to the masses, and suddenly it becomes unpalatable. Um, and, and that really reveals more about our politics than anything about the technology itself. Um, I, I think it is important that you mentioned uh, that powerful technologies uh, uh, get uh, democratized. And yes, for example, the mobile phone uh, is a premier example of this. I have uh, photos taken with permission of homeless people uh, whose uh, faces are uh, illuminated uh, by the colorful screens of smartphones as they go uh, to sleep under uh, under uh, you know the the the, the streetlights, and and uh, literally hundreds of millions of people are empowered and emancipated uh, by uh, the power of their mobile phone for for trading their produce or uh, looking up uh, the the weather forecast and and preparing for uh, for it. Uh, and um, central banks have not taken into account the immense deflationary power of the multitude of these technologies as they are coming as an onslaught unstoppably because yeah. whatever we could do, and today we are doing it for, let's say, $500 on average, it would cost millions of dollars 10 years ago billions of dollars 20 years ago and right. nobody could achieve them it was pure magic 30 years ago so I, I can't i can't disagree with that thesis while sitting in my multi-million dollar tv studio that i built in my basement for a lot less than multi-millions and the the the, the literal <laughs> and the, and the international broadcast. yeah the international broadcasting capability that we both have um, exactly Yes, exactly. uh, I, I still remember. So, so I, I, I believe that, that there is some truth uh, to the fact that um, we, we, we can afford to look at money differently than before because of the uh, increasing rate of acceleration. I call these jolting technologies where we are not even talking about a constant acceleration anymore. But uh, with, with artificial intelligence, uh, a year ago, Stanford University and OpenAI published a study where they were saying, if AI accelerated constantly, we would have had only an eightfold increase in its power from 2012 to 2020, but instead we had a 300,000-fold increase. And that is because that acceleration is not constant, but itself uh, is is increasing um now in terms of of uh, social implications uh, for me this is quite uh fundamental uh, literally so because i published uh, several years ago uh, uh, uh what i called the network society manifesto uh, and uh, the uh, fundamental thesis of network society um articulating how social change only happens if there is a set of uh, solid technologies that make 
this change sustainable and that indeed we are living in an era where whether it is uh, solar photovoltaics or 3D printing and digital manufacturing or hydroponics or peer-to-peer -peer learning or personalized health and indeed uh, unfettered peer-to-peer -peer economic transactions independently all of these technologies are going in the same direction of decentralization and the nation state that has been dominating our lives for the past several centuries and now it is practically impossible not to belong to one and to be answerable to one is under attack because either it adapts to the disruption that these technologies are going to bring or in the past the answer was in resolving the accumulating tensions bloody revolutions and wars where the winners wrote the history books and the losers uh, were both wrong and dead. So with nuclear weapons, the challenge we have is to see whether an alternative is now possible, whether we can rebuild the airplane while we are flying in it without crashing. Do you have any um, feeling whether this is going to be possible or whether the um panicky reactions are going to create such a rigid environment that no stimulation will be sufficient to make it move in the direction that is unstoppably happening i i, I think it's absolutely possible um to have uh peaceful change and i think that's possible primarily because um, we can implement change in ways that are different from before um, to add to your to your network effect and the discussion we had earlier about the deflationary impact of disruptive technologies, I think there is a fundamental difference between what we saw in the 20th century and what we're seeing now. The 20th century is characterized primarily by um, the deflationary economics of tangible goods. Um, it was the triumph of manufacturing and industrialization over tangible goods. Even in semiconductors, the primary evolution was the evolution in chip density. Um, you know, you mentioned nuclear weapons, um, steel production, you know, all of these things that characterize the 20th century are about stuff. They're about atoms, not bits. Um, when you start talking about AI, and I would argue equally, uh, the twin pillars that are being changed and disrupted by blockchain, which are money and trust, these are intangible things. Um, and one of the interesting things that exists in intangible things is um, that they can evolve much, much faster. The rate of acceleration can be much higher than intangible things. There are physical constraints that uh, apply in physics, chemistry, science, that limit the amount of acceleration you can do. You know, Moore's Law, for example, uh, that doesn't apply in AI. It doesn't apply in software. Um, uh, and, and we've seen how the evolution of software has accelerated even faster than hardware. And it doesn't apply in money and it doesn't apply in trust. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is um, that as we have moved away from physical and towards more intangible things, um, 
we and built infrastructure for carrying intangible things, the internet, uh, carrying ideas around the world, um, we can also express our power in intangible ways. So um, the 20th century um, style of revolution or the 19th and 18th century before that style of revolution involved, um, as you put it, uh, blunt instruments, um, sharp instruments, and kinetic warfare. Um, but the 21st century uh, could involve a different power struggle because in the intangible domain, one of the most powerful things we can do is exit. Um, Balaji Srinivasan has um, described this as the two expressions of power, um, voice and exit. And when, when people who are not uh, powerful cannot uh, give voice to their power, then the alternative they can choose is exit. Uh, it's basically withdrawing from the system. And the interesting thing with intangible technologies, um, whether it's AI, uh, the mimetic narrative machine of the internet for tr transmitting ideas, the um, software-based system of money and trust that is uh, open blockchains, um, or even other technologies like virtual reality, one of the interesting things is that we can exit a system without exiting a country or a geography. Uh, we can withdraw our productive potential from the economy by entering the Bitcoin economy or uh, another open blockchain economy. Uh, we can withdraw our creative contribution to society by directing our creative potential uh, to intangible forms of art and writing and ideas that we give out for free and we give them outside of the system. The same thing could be happening in a lot of areas of creative development and innovation. If you can express your power through exit, um, then violence is no longer necessary to change things, and it's also no longer effective um, because they have to find you and find who you are in order to apply violence towards you. So I think that gives me a lot of hope and optimism that the change we're going to see in the 21st century is going to be fought in an intangible realm uh, of ideas and with new tools that accelerate our development and allow us to express our power through exit. Uh, the United States is the last uh, uh, empire of the 20th uh, century uh, after um, uh, the British Empire, uh, and uh, it is pursuing its uh, goals uh, with uh, unending uh, wars, as well as it is one of the only nations that uh, imposes uh, universal taxation. Exiting uh, uh, U.S. Um, uh, dominion uh, means uh, renouncing one's uh, citizenship, and this has become a longer and longer and more and more expensive uh, process. So I think it is important both in the physical and in the digital realm uh, to uh, distinguish between the theoretical possibility and, uh, and the practical viability uh, of, uh, uh, of, of adopting an alternative. Uh, because if 90% of the population cannot simply afford to pay the exit fee of, of not being American anymore, even if they want to, then it is just theoretical. Just as if you say, I don't want Google to track my emails, ingest them in their servers, I'm not gonna use Gmail, 
But if 90% of the recipients that you send the emails to are still using Google, then your communications are going to be ingested and, and uh, uh, analyzed by Google regardless. Uh, the, the third example uh, of, of uh, between these uh, practical or, or theoretical possibilities is somebody saying, I, I, I don't want to use uh, Microsoft Windows or Android or iOS. I will go Linux only. The level of sacrifice uh, is close to masochism if, if you want to do that, uh, to the point that uh, um, Richard Stallman is known never to watch a DVD because there is no legal means uh, to, to, to watch uh, DVDs and encrypt them on, on Linux. Um, now, uh, Mark is, is asking, um, aren't we worried about uh, the centralization of uh, Bitcoin uh, on, on mining pools, for example? Uh, or is uh, Bitcoin representing the, the peer-to-peer -peer ideal that we are striving for in, in, in decentralization? Well, so uh, for one thing, it's important to recognize that decentral decentralization is is not a true-false um, parameter. It's not a Boolean. Um, it's a range. And, and it's also a multidimensional range, which means that you can be more decentralized in one dimension, less decentralized in another. And it's difficult to measure. Um, People often look at mining pools as a means of centralization, but the the true fact is that mining pools are um, groupings that are voluntary among miners, and they do not represent hash power. Um, and so miners can leave a mining pool if they feel that it doesn't serve their needs or uh, attempts to control something. Mining pools are not mining farms. Um, and even if they were, um, just because there is concentration in mining doesn't mean that miners have uh, power over consensus. Consensus is an emergent phenomenon that depends on multiple different parties agreeing, including the operators of nodes, exchanges, merchants, the developers themselves, etc. That was demonstrated very clearly in 2017 when many of the biggest businesses in, in Bitcoin together with many of the biggest miners and mining pools, attempted a coup um, or attempted a power, um, a power struggle and, and quite frankly, lost. Uh, so um, th that demonstrated that they didn't have as much power as people thought. Um, I think uh, Bitcoin is uh, the most decentralized uh, payment system, monetary system, and financial system the world has ever seen. Uh, over time, it's gotten more decentralized, not less. And um, it, it continues to be far more decentralized than anything else that is comparable or even close. So from that perspective, um, I, I think it's a, a very powerful system. Now, could it be more decentralized? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and there are lots of efforts to increase decentralization in different aspects of it to increase privacy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not an easy problem to solve because centralization is, of course, efficient. Um, and um, this, is a, this has always been a battle between um, efficiency and liberty. 
in order to gain liberty, you sacrifice some efficiency. And the problem is that for many people, liberty is intangible, um, unclear, and they often try to sacrifice it uh, in favor of some gained efficiency. Um, in in uh, today's pandemic uh, world, the 20, 30, 40 year uh, maximization of uh, supply chain efficiency, sacrificing uh, redundancy and resiliency uh, mm -hmm. has come uh, painfully uh, to, to the surface for many. Um, one of the most uh, surprising examples uh, before the fact and after the fact uh, evident that I heard is how the U.S. military is dependent on single source Chinese uh, suppliers and Indian suppliers of uh, uh, key components for pharmaceuticals that they need in order to, you know, uh, uh, heal the, the, the sick uh, among the military force. Um, the uh, opportunity of, of democratizing access uh, includes access to exciting projects. And even if we say that Bitcoin uh, is, is not per se an investment instrument, and it is uh, extremely reductive to just slot it into uh, an asset that we want to see appreciating uh, uh, or, or depreciating if we, are, we want to short it. Um, it is definitely the case that um, in many jurisdictions, the assumption is that if you are uh, wealthy, you deserve to um, risk your money in exclusive investment opportunities and if you are poor you are stupid and so it is the regulator's job to make sure that you are excluded from those uh, opportunities um, and and this has been evident uh, in uh, the sec's um, position the securities exchange commission's position in the us that that stopped any possible experimentation, the 100-year rule of the Howey test of what is a security and what isn't a security still is the last word. Um, a, a little bit like if I went and, and showed them an airplane and, and they said, but uh, 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 where are the, the four legs? And I said, well, it doesn't have four legs. Where are the hooves? It doesn't have hooves. But how can this be a horse? And they would say, no, it isn't. I would say it isn't a horse. And they would say, sorry, only horses can transport people and goods. And yeah, the, the law says you have to have a veterinarian on staff uh, if you operate a transportation company. And to argue otherwise is a radical and irresponsible behavior towards the public that will surely spread disease. Um, and, 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 and there isn't any chance of, of trying it out because not even sandboxes, not even cordoned off, uh, um, tightly controlled experiments must be uh, carried out, not only in the U.S., but via uh, the, the uh, expectation of universal jurisdiction of, of U.S. US uh, authorities basically nowhere in the world. Yeah. 
What's not working? Well, it, well, it, it is it not. is reducing it is reducing the U.S. to be in the rear guard of financial innovation. Right. Yeah, um, I I have a, um, a a slogan that I like to put out there, which is that um, you can take your country out of Bitcoin, but you can't take Bitcoin out of your country. Um, and th the bottom line is that if you um, decide to ban something that is amorphous, um, intangible, network-based, uh, and um, not geographic, uh, what you end up doing is you ban your ability to have any influence over it and the ability of those uh, who operate large companies and are more sensitive to these regulations to have any influence of it. But you don't change the fact that that thing both exists and will continue to be used in your environment. Um, you know, the, the biggest discussion in Bitcoin for the first uh, 10 years has mostly been about whether and how Bitcoin should be regulated. But um, what's been missed is that one of the biggest disruptions that Bitcoin brings to the table is that by changing the nature of trust and disrupting the institutions of trust, it also, first and foremost, disrupts the very concept and operation of regulators. Um, so, yeah, they can apply the Howey test uh, and they can find whatever they want. But if you're dealing with a completely decentralized software system that has no leaders, that has no company, that has no headquarters, that has no shareholders, um, the question then is, who do you sue and who do you put in jail? Um, well, and, and that becomes a very difficult thing to answer. If you look at what the SEC has done, um, they've carefully chosen their battles in order to avoid revealing the fundamental weakness in this position. And the fundamental weakness in their position is they can pick on companies that have very centralized operations and are building crowdfunding on top of tokens. Uh, because there's someone to sue for damages. They have very clearly steered away from touching things like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And they come up with these new complicated tests to say, oh, well, it's not a security because it's decentralized. But the bottom line is that it's not just a matter of it not being a security because it's decentralized. Um, because it acts like a security and it gives people the opportunity to access investments they couldn't access before. The biggest problem is that the regulators have absolutely no way to enforce any decision against it. Uh, and so that's, that's going to be the battle that plays out. Um, they cannot enforce these regulations because these regulations, um, you know, as you said before, uh, does it have hooves? Um, the, the real question is not, does it have hooves? Um, but the question is, if you decide it is a horse, what are you going to do to enforce it? Um, build a stable? Uh, and so <laughs> the, the, real, the real problem is that uh, when they decide that this uh, airplane is a horse, and even if they're able to write that into law, they then try to catch it with a lasso and it's flying 30,000 feet above their heads. Um, the problem with blockchains, again, is they can decide to say it's a security, but then how do they enforce any of their rulings? Um, and so what, what, what we're doing is we're not opposing regulators um, by um, 
basically claiming they have no authority or any of that. And I often have that misunderstanding when I'm talking with regulators or those who support regulation. They seem to think that we are uh, disclaiming their authority. We're not disclaiming their authority. They have all of the authority in the world to pass all of the laws in the world. Uh, what we're disclaiming or disbelieving is their capability, uh, their capability to enforce, to regulate, in fact, um, things in which they have no power. Uh, they have plenty of authority in the jurisdictions they govern, uh, but they have uh, no power or ability to enforce things that operate uh, in software. And if they try, all they achieve is the uh, enforcement over those who are not willing to take risks in the jurisdictions that they can tightly control. And that leaves an awful lot of people outside. And and uh, it is, uh, uh, on their side, a wasted opportunity because there is certainly a lot of intellectual uh, uh, okay. firepower available uh, to the exciting uh, opportunity of working out what is uh, decentralized governance and what are the, the meta rules that we will certainly need in order to direct the power of blockchains towards uh, goals that we feel are, are worthy of, of uh, that power being applied to. Um, I was an investor in uh, the original uh, uh, DAO, the DAO, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, uh, sure that uh, a lot of people feel it, it should have been uh, better supervised, not by the regulator that couldn't understand it then, uh, but by um, uh, code that, uh, that worked uh, in a... Uh, more flawless uh, manner, um, even though we know that there is no such a thing as, as flawless uh, software. Uh, yeah, but I, I would argue that, again, we're talking about uh, a risk premium. Uh, you see, the thing is, because the DAO was immature and technologically difficult and difficult to understand and evaluate the risk, is why it only got about $150 million in investment. If we had, uh, and we will, uh, a mechanism that can deliver the same kinds of capabilities as a global crowdfunding system that anyone can invest in and that can invest in any company or any effort anywhere in the world, um, that's going to swallow a $115 trillion financial services industry. Uh, so, uh, you know, you get in early, you pay... Uh, you face much more risk, uh, but then you also earn a risk uh, premium. Uh, these things are going to continue to mature and evolve and improve. Um, and if you laugh at the first version, um, the the end result will not be so funny. Um, you know, the, the media entertainment industry in the U.S. laughed at the first iterations of Internet companies, and then eventually AOL bought Time Warner. Um, and that's going to continue happening. Uh, one day, very soon, it won't be about whether uh, a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency um, company um, can get a bank account by begging a bank to give it a bank account. We'll be talking about whether a cryptocurrency company can buy a bank. Um, and it will. Um and, and that is already, in, in some sense, uh, happening through uh, uh, the new generation of applications of uh, decentralized uh, finance, uh, where 
there are very interesting and exciting new projects being born uh, uh, that are re-implementing traditional financial products uh, in in trustless uh, protocols, and and these are bound to clash with the traditional definitions of uh, uh, what regulators uh, see should be done or or, or not done. Um, a, a DeFi project knows nothing about whether uh, somebody is in Pakistan and, and they should be uh, subjected to impossible KYC uh, procedures. Uh, and, and, and I know that because uh, I have team members in Pakistan and I know how hard it is to pay them for the work they do. And, yeah. and, and yes, uh, the, um, the um, four horsemen uh, of uh, uh, personal uh, weapons of destruction, you are a terrorist, you are a pedopornographer, you are a drug dealer and whatever the fourth is, uh, can be uh, uh, can be uh, turned against um, anybody uh, if if they uh, go uh, beyond uh, what uh, what the regulators uh, believe they should be doing. So, do you feel that uh, the DeFi projects today are sufficiently decentralized in order to um, not to be targeted by by regulators uh, in in selective uh, enforcement actions? Are there um, are there at least probably some? not for the most of, most of them probably not. Um, but then again, we, we have to talk about um, the concept of premature optimization, uh, which is one of the big traps uh, in computer science and software development. Uh, and uh, as Knuth said, premature optimization is the idea that you start optimizing something before um, you've really identified how it's going to be used. And you optimize it into the wrong way. Um, you, you, you know, uh, it's it's like um, um, optimizing the design of a product against its actual use. And so the the, the thing about uh, DeFi is that uh, robustness against a state level or regulator attack is, is not an angle that requires optimization right now because no one's attacking DeFi from that angle. Um, its primary issue right now is usability of the user interface, access for the underbanked, uh, liquidity, um, stability, maturity against bugs. Um, but at some point when it gets attacked and if it gets attacked by state level regulators, then it will become necessary to start optimizing on that dimension and then the developers will optimize on that dimension. You gave us an example earlier in the show, which was the MGM versus Grokster. Um, and, and that represents a very important lesson for the incumbent industries. And the lesson was that in the end, Napster uh, was a cuddly teddy bear that asked them to make a deal. And they killed it. And they killed the next five iterations until BitTorrent emerged, and then they couldn't kill that. Uh, and uh, it ended up, together with Apple's dominance, um, destroying the music industry and handing it all to Apple um, in the first world and over to uh, free file sharing in the rest of the world. And so that is going to happen again. 
the bottom line is that uh, even Bitcoin, which is very robust from a security perspective, is not actively hostile. It doesn't use stealth and anonymity and privacy protections and zero-knowledge proofs to actively evade state-level interference because it doesn't have to, but it can. And so, um, as I like to put it, if you step on the cute little gecko um, because it's annoying you, it will evolve. And if you keep stepping on its descendants generation after generation after generation, what it will evolve into is a Komodo dragon. And if you try to step on a Komodo dragon, it bites your foot off at the knee. Yes, and, and uh, this evolution uh, is, is very important because the power of nation states to be all-seeing can be abused, but those who pay the price are not only individuals, it's the entire society that stops being able to adapt to the necessary changes as our uh, minds morph into becoming able to think new kinds of things. Um, if uh, I loved a black woman and, and you were my friend uh, in 1965 uh, in the US, wanting me to marry her, we would be criminal co-conspirators because it was illegal in several US states for interracial marriages to happen. And then magically in 67, it became legal. But uh, how could that happen? Minority opinion became majority opinion because mm -hmm. an all-seeing state could not exterminate thought crimes. So now the temptation is, is there to, to do exactly that. And it would be um, tragic, not because individuals would uh, be found criminals of those thought crimes, but because societies that impose those limitations would be irredeemably uh, stuck in a past with everybody else uh, passing them over. Uh, well, I think that's, that's the bottom line, which is that um, centralized thinking, centralized uh, architecture, centralized decision-making, uh, centralized information flows um, are uh, or can be more efficient in the short term, and they certainly support existing power structures and uh, control structures. But they have two fundamental and very basic flaws that in the long term make them fail. Um, the first one is that because centralized systems uh, give an enormous amount of power, vest, if you like, an enormous amount of power to those who are at the very center or at the top of the pyramid, um, they tend to attract um, the worst uh, sociopaths and uh, opportunists um, who are attracted like flies to honey um, to grab the levers of power uh, and to exploit them uh, in a way to enrich uh, and empower themselves. And we see that happening all the time in every um, cycle of history. The, the second fundamental flaw they have is that they uh, gradually lose the ability to make good decisions because uh, they get overwhelmed by information and because they are so distant from the sources of information um, or the places where the decisions have impact, um, that they're unable to evaluate risk, to evaluate uh, truth from lie, um, and to apply decision-making. So 
both in terms of collecting the information they make mistakes and in terms of disseminating decisions and enforcing them they make mistakes. And, uh, you know, a recent example, a perfect recent example would be the fact that the all-powerful, all-seeing surveillance and control mechanism of the Chinese Communist Party um, jailed the 18 doctors who spoke up about the pandemic in November, December, and January in Wuhan. But them jailing the 18 doctors didn't stop it from being a pandemic. Um, and uh, they paid a very heavy price for that. Uh, and it cost them far more than if they had actually listened or if they had allowed the rest of society to listen to those doctors. This is the kind of mistake that happens. And we saw it with other, um, we've seen it again and again with other authoritarian governments. Eventually they lose their ability to make good decisions. So that means that centralized systems become fragile. Uh, they become rife with corruption, and then they start making very poor decisions uh, because they lack the right motivation structures and the right information. Decentralized systems, on the other hand, are robust. Decision-making is rapid because the decisions are made as closely as possible to both the source of information and the place of impact of the decision uh, in a very, very tight loop. And because they decentralize, they don't have single points of failure. They don't have points that, uh, where corruption can concentrate or power can concentrate. So in the long run, if the outcome of the battle between uh, these two alternative ways of organizing society plays out, um, no doubt in the short term, centralized systems will win. But in the medium and long term, they lose. Um, and more and more people will be able to see that. Uh, when I talk about Bitcoin uh, um, in 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 the people that among the people that listen to me, often there is uh, someone who says, "But we have uh, uh, paper money and coins and credit cards and wire transfers and 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 paper checks. Why do we need uh, Bitcoin?" And and I always loved to 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 tell them over the years, "Listen, I have friends who are working on." Uh, the uh, autonomous robots that 30 years from now will be in swarms in the asteroid belt extracting mineral resources and as they communicate among themselves uh, for uh, fuel and, and transportation and communication and energy and everything else, will they use coins or paper checks or, or banknotes? Uh, for me, it is evident that whether it is going to be called Bitcoin or Ether or whatever else, they will use a peer-to-peer -peer system of, of machine-based economy that will be native to them. And, and so as I have been talking about this uh, as, as a possibility over the years, it was, it was pretty funny uh, when a couple of years ago, uh, the commercial arm... Um, implementing Ethereum projects consensus actually acquired uh, planetary resources that uh, was uh, a company planning for uh, mining uh, uh, missions on on the on the asteroids. Now, obviously, consensus didn't make the acquisition because they are planning to mine asteroids yet but they wanted to save the intellectual property that uh, that the company that was floundering couldn't preserve. 
but still for me this was an example of a future to come where machine to machine communication uh, will support a hybrid civilization uh, with empowered humans uh, being able to thrive and uh, uh, efficient but resilient and robust uh, decentralized uh, systems uh, that um, uh, really uh, swarm uh, the, the solar system supporting our dreams. So for me, that was um, uh, very, very empowering uh, to see. What is, in your opinion, the uh, not uh, five-year or 10-year, but 30, 50, or 100-year promise of, uh, of Bitcoin and blockchain? So I, I find it funny that you would um, describe it the way um, to, to go to autonomous robots in space. I, I would go much closer to home. When someone says, you know, we have cash, we have credit cards, we have Visa, we have um, paper currency and stock markets and things like that. The first question you need to ask is, who is we? Who is this we you're talking about? Because um, by any measure, uh, that's a very, very narrow we. Um, you're talking about at most 15% of the human population um, that has all of those things without restrictions and can exercise them with the powers of a feudal king of the 16th century. Um, and then there's everybody else. And so uh, one of the slogans that I've used in my cryptocurrency journey has been, this is about the other 6 billion. If you count the number of people who have modern open banking that is international in nature without controls, with uh, pretty much freedom to invest in anything, anywhere, and um, access to multiple currencies, uh, freedom of capital movement, uh, you're talking about less than 15% of the human population. Right here in the United States, 18% uh, of the population is considered unbanked or severely underbanked. That's 60 million people who don't even have access to a basic checking account and live primarily through cash uh, and paycheck cashing services that are usurious in nature. That's here. And that's one of the best numbers you see in the world. Some countries have in excess of 60, 70, 75% of their population unbanked or severely underbanked. That is the reality for most. And more than 55% of the world lives under dictatorships. So before we go to robots in space, my short-term vision is much, much simpler. Over the next 25 years, can we bring universal access to basic finance to every human on this planet um, without vetting, without authorization, without the possibility of confiscation or denial, um, with uh, the prerequisite being access to the most basic and simple technologies, uh, such as the most simple uh, mobile device that, that costs under $10, um, maybe electricity through a solar panel, and nothing else. And through that, give that person and everybody else, seven and a half billion or nine billion by that time, um, access to the same power as uh, a Swiss banker uh, that has an entire bank at their disposal or a multinational corporation has today. That's democratization of finance. 
yes, machine-to-machine -machine finance is very interesting and fascinating and very sci-fi and sexy, et cetera. But the real issue we're dealing with today is the fact that 25 years into the evolution of the internet, we have not seen democratization of finance. Instead, we've seen balkanization of finance. Uh, currency wars are breaking out. Uh, finance, money itself, and access to basic banking has been turned into a weapon in a geopolitical war um, that is raging out of control, in which entire countries are being cut off um, from access to international capital and investment opportunities, or even life-saving medicine, um, at the whim of one or two countries that decide they're going to cut them off. That is an unacceptable situation to exist in, um, and it gives enormous power um, to, to people to destroy the lives of innocents. Uh, so I'm much more interested in universal basic access to finance. Uh, not robots in space getting money, uh, but all of the people who um, you don't meet unless you travel a bit getting access to money. So next time a friend of yours says, we have credit cards and cash, ask them, who's we? Uh, that is absolutely wonderful. And you uh, put it as a question. Can we build it over the course of the next 25 years? Um, what would make us well, fail? We've already built it. We just need to make it better. <laughs> Well, we, we need to improve it and, and make it make everybody adopt it. Uh, and and uh, uh, um, Ramez Nam uh, is, is a wonderful um, uh, educator about uh, uh, renewable energy and solar technology. And 10 years ago, he made a prediction about how solar photovoltaics would decrease in price. Reality proved him a pessimist because now solar photovoltaics in increasing geographies is the cheapest energy available at a degree and with a speed that even he uh, wasn't courageous enough to to, to predict. Uh, yeah. So uh, I am uh, very much uh, of an optimist by nature, but uh, I, I really hope that uh, with the efforts uh, of people like, like you and thousands of others and soon millions of others, uh, we will be able to achieve what you said, maybe not in 25 years, sooner because that will uh, unleash uh, human creativity and human potential at unprecedented scales as uh, we will be able to associate and to transact and to trade uh, both in goods but uh, maybe even more importantly in ideas and projects that we create uh, and and it will be really wonderful because we don't even know if seven or nine billion people are enough uh, to generate all the ideas that we need in order to address and solve the challenges that we are facing. So squandering any of that talent and any of that passion and creativity is really a tragedy that we must overcome and avoid. Andres, mm -hmm. thank you very much for being with uh, Searching for the Question live uh, today. Uh, I greatly enjoyed this conversation and uh, I really invite uh, our uh, viewers uh, to make sure that uh, you can keep doing what you are doing through our support on your Patreon page because uh, your uh, ideas and ability uh, to bring these ideas uh, uh, to be uh, accessible and understandable by everybody uh, really deserve uh, that kind of support. So, Andres, thank you very much.
thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, if anybody wants to watch more of my work, um, it's all available under free, ad-free, and open licenses online, including more than 500 videos on YouTube. Um, several books that you can read for free and are available online. Um, and uh, if you want to support me, I don't take sponsors and I don't have corporate sponsors, so it would have to be directly from the community on Patreon. Thank you again, David, for this opportunity. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, thank you, everybody, for following uh, Searching for the Question live. Uh, it has been a pleasure to have uh, uh, Andres as uh, our guest uh, today. Uh, subscribe to our channel. Um, support us uh, on Patreon as well. Uh, just a second click after supporting uh, uh, Andres if you believe uh, we deserve it. And I am looking forward to uh, see you uh, in our next episode soon.